Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, let's open up Galatians 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to talk about the idea of being first generational in our thinking and our convictions. Don't look at Paul as our example. But let me pray for us while you turn there. Father, I pray that you would fill me full of the Holy Spirit to speak and communicate well and clearly, Lord, to say everything you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less. And just the way that you want me to say it, Lord. And just as important, I pray for all of us, Lord, to listen well, to hear well, and really to be listening to you, to your word. Uh, for the unique thing that you might be wanting to say to each of us individually and impress upon our hearts, or where we need encouragement and strength, would you give us that? Where we need more conviction and humility, would you give us that? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, someone asked to speak on being first generational, and I'm glad they did, because that's something we talk about a lot in Campus Outreach, but I've never given like a whole talk on it, so it was good for me to kind of think through it. It's not a word in the Bible. So I'm going to define it, and other people may define it differently, but for the next 30 minutes, this is how we're going to define it, okay? First generation would be owning a conviction, that you truly and personally own a conviction. And this can be implied, I'm going to give a lot of examples, it can be applied to a lot of different areas. Second generational would be you're merely barring the conviction. You don't own it yet, you're just barring someone else's conviction. Third generation would be you're questioning the conviction. You're really wrestling with the conviction, so to speak. So I'll give a few examples. My dad taught me how to tithe when I was a little kid, and I basically took his method of teaching me how to tithe and taught my kids how to tithe. So I, you know, if I gave him 10 pennies, it was like, you need to take one of those pennies and put it in the plate when we go to church. That's pretty easy to do. Uh, they got older. It's like, okay, your allowance is going to be $20 a week. So here's the way I'm going to do it. I'll put $18 in your bank account, but then we'll get to church. I'll give you $2, and you'll go put the $2 in the plate. You know, sometimes they, I might give them the $2. They'd kind of like, can I just put it in my pocket, Dad, or do I have to? I mean, at best, that was a third, maybe you call that a fourth generation. It's like I was making them. It's like, no, you have to put the money in the plate. But at best, it was a third generational conviction, right? I mean, they're, they're wrestling with, I don't know if I really believe this. One of my sons, he got a summer job. He made some good money. He was calling me to tell me about the money he made. He was like, Dad, I'm, I'm going to try to save some of it. You know, put this in my savings account. I'm thinking about, you know, maybe invest a little bit. And I said, have you tithed off of that, buddy? And he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, and, but the next week he called me back and said, hey, Dad, I did tithe off that money. So I'd say, okay, second generational, right? He's, he still doesn't own it, but he's starting to borrow it from me. My oldest son's graduated off the payroll, praise the Lord, uh, got his own job. He called me out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him about tithing in years. Not that I remember. He called me and said, Hey, Dad, i got a question I want to ask you about tithing. And he's asking specifics about does all 10% have to go to the local church, that kind of stuff. He owns the conviction. He's planning on tithing without me having to even talk to him about it. So, um, again, I think you can see how you can do that in lots of different areas. And let me say this. Being second generation or even third generation on your convictions is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a sinful thing. It might just be an immature thing, right? I mean, think about if we rewind 20 years 
and one of my kids is three years old and you happen to be in Birmingham and sitting next to us at Broadway Presbyterian one morning and you see my little three-year-old taking their one penny and putting it in the plate and you said, hey, why are you putting that penny in the plate? And they said, because Dad told me to. You know, I don't think any of you would be dumb enough to say, that's a terrible reason to do it. You ought to quote Malachi 3.10, bring the tithe into the store. He's doing the best he can for a three-year-old, right? Now, if a 23-year-old said, yeah, I'm putting my money in the plate because Dad told me, that's probably a problem. Most of the people that come on staff with Campus Outreach, they either came to Christ through this ministry, or they were a baby Christian when they first got involved in the ministry. Let's just do this for fun, show of hands. How many of you came to Christ through Campus Outreach? Show of hands, curious. Okay. And then how many of you would say, I was a pretty baby, immature Christian when I got involved in Campus Outreach? Okay. That's almost everybody. Maybe not everybody, almost everybody. And that's, that's typical every time I've ever done that, any region, anytime, anywhere. To me, that's a glorious thing. That, that shows the evangelistic blessing that God has put on our ministry. I was speaking for another ministry one time, college ministry, and I asked the same question, only one guy. And I was like, to me, that's problematic. That's scary. How many people are you leading to Christ? Okay. But the danger of this is a lot of our student leaders, young staff, they can just have second-generational, third-generational convictions, right? I mean... Let's just say you may have a student leader on the beach project. Why do you read your Bible every day? Because Blake told me to. Why are you going out sharing your faith with your coworkers? Because Mike told me to. That's not a bad answer if they've only been a Christian a year. If you've been on staff for 10 years, and it's like, hey, why do you spend time in prayer every day? And it's like, well, that's what Andy told me to do. Probably not a great answer. Make sense? So... We need to be maturing, owning our convictions. Let me just kind of, uh, well, I'll, I'll hang on to that for a while. But do you understand the way that I'm kind of using this rubric? Okay? It's about owning your convictions personally. Now, Paul, I think, is a great example of this because think about it. When he becomes a Christian, the New Testament church has already started. But he very quickly became a first generational leader and minister, did he not? And I think for us to be really first generational, our convictions, they really have to be grounded in study and suffering and in a solitary stand. And I'll explain what I mean as we go. So first, let's look at study. We're going to look at this passage in Galatians 1. Let me just give you a little bit of background so you understand. So right, Paul becomes a Christian. He starts preaching and teaching, having this ministry. And you had this group of people called the Judaizers that were connected to the Jerusalem church, but they were really false teachers. But what they would do is they would come around to these Gentile places where Paul had been planting churches and say, well, you know, Paul's a nice guy. He got his gospel from the original 12 apostles. They're the real first-generational Christians. They actually walked with Jesus. And Paul didn't fully understand everything. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, lived, died, rose, all that kind of good stuff. Put your faith in Him. But He's the Jewish Messiah. So you want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. Then you become a Christian. So you Gentiles can get in, but you've got to get circumcised first, mainly, okay? And probably they're putting in the dietary laws and all that kind of stuff. So that is a lot of the reason Paul is writing this letter is to refute that attack. So let's pick up Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul's essentially saying, even if an angel comes down and tells you a different gospel than the one I said, he can go to hell. 
So when you start saying angels can be damned if they disagree with my conviction, that's a pretty strong ownership of the conviction. All right? <laughs> Paul has become very first generational in his ownership of the gospel of grace. Okay? Uh, verse 9. As we've said before, he's going to kind of double down on it. So now I'll say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Guys, one real practical way to know, and I'm going to give some examples of this later, do I really own this conviction is when you can say, I am living out this conviction for the honor and the glory and the pleasure and the smile of Christ and not for any other human being. I just don't care. I was talking to one guy in another region and he's having some trouble with some support and some stuff with his family and I'm trying to listen and understand. But as I got down to it, basically, the real, I mean, it's kind of, he was kind of rambling about different things and I was asking questions. I got down to it, he's like, at some level, I'm embarrassed about what I do. You know, I've got this degree, but what I still do is I just go to campus and do Bible studies with college students that don't even want me around half the time. And I just, that does, and I have to ask for money. I just think some of the people that I grew up with, they give me money, but they're kind of like, ah, he's not doing that great of a thing. Because, because as I'm asking the questions, I'm realizing he's got full support. He's got plenty of money. He's making plenty of money to pay the bills. The real issue is he just kind of feels embarrassed. And part of what, I, once I got to that, I was like, why do you care what they think? You're getting paid. Do you feel called to this ministry or not? And if you feel called to it, you shouldn't care. You know, it's a lot easier said than done, right? That's how Paul felt, though. I don't care what people think of me. I just care what Jesus thinks. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Now, if we're not going to do this, but you can go look at Acts chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, and it doesn't mention this, but that's where this happened that Paul, right after he gets saved, he probably started preaching in the synagogues just a few days in Damascus, but then he didn't go up to Jerusalem. He went out in the Arabian desert all by himself for three years, and he's saying, that's where I really got the gospel. Now, people debate, was it just him in the Old Testament studying and the Holy Spirit showing him the gospel all through the Old Testament? Or was Jesus in some sense really appearing to him personally as an apostle and teaching him? We don't know, and for our sake, it doesn't really matter. The point is, the, way that you, the best way for you to really get your convictions is you study and you wrestle with Scripture. And just think about it. Flip over to chapter 2. <laughs> you all know this story, I bet. right? Chapter 2, let's start in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, ah, that's Peter again. Now here's another way you know your convictions. When you're willing to rebuke the guy that was the super apostle before you were even a Christian. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now here's what's interesting. All Peter did, it's like they were having Wednesday night fellowship supper. And Peter had been hanging out eating ribs, you know, pork ribs or something like that with all these Gentiles. And then when a group came down from Jerusalem, Peter got a little, little fearful. What are they going to think about me hanging out with all these Gentiles? So he just quits, quits sitting at their table. In one sense, it's not that bad, right? But Peter, I mean, excuse me, Paul had so internalized the gospel, he really understood it, that he could understand... At the surface level, this doesn't look bad. This just looks like Peter switched tables. But I know what's going on in Peter's heart. He's not fully living out the implications of the free grace of the gospel. And he was able to rebuke him. That's another way you know when you fully own a conviction is you've internalized it that you can understand the way to apply it in life. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me try to give you some personal examples. All right? I grew up in a great godly home. I became a Christian. I think I was about seven. I really had a discipleship relationship with my dad from like 15 to 18. Like I said, I went to Samford. Already feeling called to the ministry. But part of I me, mean, Samford was an interesting place. Okay? Partially because it was this Baptist school where the peer pressure was at least to act like a Christian if you weren't a Christian. Like literally, people would go to the fraternity sorority parties and not drink. They didn't pre-game the party. They post-game the party. Because you wanted to act at the party like, look at me, I'm a great Christian, that's nice. And you know, then you went and got hammered drunk after the party. Uh, a lot of people skip church on Sunday morning, but what they did is when they woke up to go eat lunch in the cafeteria, they would put on church clothes so everybody thought they went to church. I'm serious at heart. This was the culture at Sanford. And so I was repulsed by all that. And so I was really trying to own my convictions. Now, another thing that everybody, that seemed like the vast majority of people did at Sanford, anytime they were having a meal, so you had lunch in the food court, they'd make a big show about saying the blessed. They'd take off their hat, you know, and be like, have like a you know two minute quiet time over their subway sandwich or whatever, and then I'm like I was like this guy's not a believer. I've been seeing him out on the weekends, and so part of what I realized is why well, say the blessing? Why do I say the blessing? It's just always what my parents did. Which again, that's not bad as a part of conviction, but I didn't own it. I'd never studied saying the blessing, so I totally quit saying the blessing. And I was actually kind of a self-righteous, arrogant jerk about it, you know? Like you'd sit at a table, maybe with like eight people, and everybody's like having their little quiet time over their breakfast or whatever, and I'd just start eating loudly, like smacking in their face. I was trying to make a point. I don't do blessings. I don't believe in blessings. (laughs) Until I came up a place in Timothy where it talks about saying thanks for your food. And you know, and I found passages where Jesus was praying over food. And then I started praying over my food again. Now, I'm not saying you got to do it that way. Like I said, I was kind of arrogant, self-righteous, and stupid. But I was trying to own my convictions. Does that make sense? <clears throat> For a long time, whenever I would teach on prayer, prayer was a big part of my life. You know, Brian said something about that earlier. When I would teach on prayer, I would say, this is the way I would teach it for years. I think it's ideal if every Christian has some time alone to just focus on personal time alone, praying, to your Father in Heaven. But that's a suggested application. I don't think I can tell you you have to pray every day. And you know why I said that? I couldn't find a verse that said that. A lot of principles about prayer. I couldn't find one verse that said you have to pray every day. Until I just started meditating more deeply on the Lord's Prayer, which part of the Lord's Prayer is, 
give us this day our daily bread. And it's like, you know what? I think Jesus is implying there He wants us to pray every single day. So now when I teach you about prayer, I'm like, you should pray. It's not just a suggested application. It's like, you should do it. You should have that conviction. Does that make sense? So, I don't know where you struggle. If you're like, man, I got tons of barred convictions. I got tons of convictions I'm questioning. That's not necessarily bad. What you should do is study the words so that you can go deep in your personal convictions. That's the best thing to do. Second thing, suffering. Y'all know this, but just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And before I read this, as you're turning there, just think about what's the worst suffering you've been through? What's the worst suffering you've been through in ministry? Since you've been on staff, since you've been in ministry, worst suffering you've been through. And I know some of you have been through some hard stuff. 1 Corinthians 11.23. That's the wrong place. 2 Corinthians 11. Excuse me. I was about to read to you about the Lord's Supper. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Start in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Again, talking about these false teachers. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. I mean, just pause there, guys. We won't do a show of hands on this one, but it's like, has anybody ever been beat up? And this guy's like, if you have, you're probably like, yeah, I remember one time back in high school, I got countless beatings. I can't even keep counting how many times I've been beat before. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me. Just, you know, just add this one. On me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artes was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I just want to look at one of these super fast. So flip over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, super fast. Start in verse 8, Acts 14 verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. So he's in Lystra. All right. We're not going to read the whole story. Skip down to verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And dragged him out of the city, supposing he's dead. So they hit him with stones so many times, he looks dead. They drag him out of the city, leave him for dead. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. He went back. <laughs> he got stoned. He's almost dead. I mean, have you have y'all ever really like meditated on stoning? I mean, people like throwing rocks at you to kill you. How many of them have to hit you in the face before you just pass out? And how beaten, bloodied, and bruised would you be? And you wake up and like, going back. 
I got a guy that's a great Camp Saturday staff, and he was really considered moving from one place to another place, and he's going to be working with a different church and different campus and all that. And this guy's been on staff a long time. He's got a bunch of kids, so he makes a decent amount of money, and he should. But as he's talking to this new church, part of what he's saying is, well, how much are you guys going to come on my support team? And the church he was talking about going to, they're smaller. And it's like, and it's nobody in this room. I'm not going to tell any stories about stories in this room, so don't be looking around like, nobody in this room. Okay. And, he, and they were like, we're not sure. You know, our budget isn't the same. Way. And he was kind of talking to me like, man, I, you know, if they're not going to put up some money, I don't know if I can do this. Now, I've got a good relationship with this guy. And I was able to just say, I know some people on Camp Sutter staff making the exact same amount of money as you, maybe even a little bit more. Been on staff even longer. Their church doesn't give them anything. They're certainly not what you're asking for. Is it wrong to want your church to be a big supporter? No. Is it wrong to demand it? Yeah. I mean, you see what I'm having to do here? For our suffering, I'm having to really stretch. My home church isn't supporting me as much as I wish. That's a lot better than getting beaten so many times you can't remember. Another guy, this is in the Birmingham region. New young girl came on staff. New area director over that campus. You know, and they said, hey man, I gotta talk to you about something. This new girl going to this new church, you know. Been there a year, she really doesn't like it. Hates the local church where the staff go. Like cries, just doesn't feel like she's been fed. Again, I got a good relationship with this area director. And he's a new area director. He's trying, to, he's trying to be a good shepherd, right? What do I tell her, man? What do I, this is bad. And, and at first I just kind of said, so? I've been doing this long enough to know sometimes in some of these little small towns we're at, because the campus is amazing, the church is not going to be the greatest church, right? You might not find John Piper's church out in Podonkville. <laughs> now, do I want to go to great churches where people get fed? Absolutely. But also realize we're in a freaking war zone. And you can't sit around and wait for everything to be ideal. And so part of what I said to this area director, and again, I got a good relationship with her. I mean, I don't have a good relationship with a girl. I don't really know her. I got a good relationship with the area director. And uh, he's like, so you're saying she doesn't need to be shepherd and fed? I was like, no, I just said, that might have to be your job. You and your wife might really have to help her be shepherded. Should the church do a better job? Absolutely. But we can't control the church. But we control what we do. So you might have to get in the game more than you were planning on getting in the game in this girl's life. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not trying to minimize the hardship and the pain. I am saying this. I think we, for, I mean, we talk about, oh, it's spiritual warfare and our enemy's not flesh and blood. I don't think we think about that enough. We have a God that loves us and is for us and we're going to win in the end. But we have a real enemy that hates us. He doesn't take vacations. He never shows mercy. He's been doing this for thousands of years. He's an expert and he is out to kill, still, and destroy. And especially ministers, right? It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. Here's my main point on the suffering. Don't be shocked when it comes. When I first moved back from Florence to Briarwood to become the regional director 19 years ago, I was meeting with an elder 
at Briarwood who had used to be on the staff at Campus Outreach. He was, his name was mentioned earlier. I won't mention it now. But he was one of these first guys that was hired and now he's an elder. So I was just trying to learn more about the history of CO, the history of Briarwood and everything. And just We probably had a three-hour lunch where he's just telling me all this stuff. And we get done, he said, oh, then I got one piece of advice for you. I said, okay. Just think about this. I was 26 years old, new director, new to town, excited. I got all this vision and optimism. He said, I got one piece of advice for you. I mean, I'm thinking it's going to be great. He says, whatever you do, don't get cynical and don't get jaded. And I remember leaving thinking, that's weird. One piece of advice, that's what you got for me? 19 years later, being on the inside, seeing how the sausage is made, I'm like, that guy was a genius. <laughs> you're going to get hurt. And do you hear what's been happening? A lot of time you're going to get hurt by friendly fire. It's not fair. It's not right. It hurts twice as much. Right? Don't be shocked when it comes. It happened to the Apostle Paul. Don't minimize it. Push back on it in all the healthy ways you can. But don't be shocked. We're in a war. The third thing. A solitary stand. Let's go to 2 Timothy. I mean, and let's just be honest while we turn here. Maybe the greatest suffering is when you feel like you got to do it all alone. Right? I mean, it's fun when you go into the fraternity house and everybody thinks you're awesome. They're like, dude, we want to make you like an honorary initiate. <laughs> That's fun, isn't it? It ain't fun when they're like, hey, we heard what you're doing and we don't want you to ever come to this house again. What do you do then? Quit. What do you do when the campus gets a restraining order against you? God, this is our history. <laughs> So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Paul to Timothy. Last thing we have from Paul. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. See, he told us, guys. Like 2,000 years ago, Paul just said, hey, let me know. Let me give you a heads up. You're going to suffer. And I think where I have been misguided in my past, and I fear some of us may have as well, is I'm like, okay, okay, you know, America's not really suffering persecution yet, but... Maybe if the Chinese take over and they start putting us in prison, that's when the suffering will start. And like that'll be really bad suffering, right? I hope it doesn't happen. But there are other softer versions of suffering we're already experiencing, right? And again, sometimes from Finley Fire. And we got to endure that suffering as well. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I mean, in a, in a, I mean, Paul, obviously, y'all know this, he had so much affection for Timothy. But as a loving spiritual father that realized, I'm about to get my head chopped off, Timothy. And you're a guy that struggled with timidity, and I'm not going to be around to help you more. I'm just letting you know, it's going to be tough. But do your job. And I'll see you on the other side. Because Christian's got a great retirement plan. And it lasts forever. It's going to be an eternal party. And we get to live in a mansion with Jesus. And if you like golf, you probably play a lot of golf up there, right? Let me give you all one really great example of this. 
Casey Williamson, some of y'all know him, director of Campus Outreach Baton Rouge. So there used to be what's called Campus Outreach Gulf Coast. Well, I don't know, maybe like a dozen years ago, Campus Outreach Gulf Coast imploded. Bad leadership and, and mainly some financial decisions that were made. There were multiple, that was one thing. And part of what happened in the bad financial, not, not sinful, nobody was like stealing money, just stupid, right? I mean, sinful is worse, but stupid can get you in a lot of trouble, right? <laughs> just stupid financial decisions made. So part of the reason the ministry shut down is like all these people thought they had overages, like, oh, no, your overage already got spent by somebody else. So the ministry's just closing down, and a lot of the staff are like, and all my money's gone, I just go get another job. Casey said, no, no, I'm so committed to building laborers on the campus for the lost world. I'm going to go start a part-time grass-cutting business. So I'm going to buy a lawnmower with a little bit of savings I got, and I'll cut grass maybe 20, 30 hours a week, and then I'll spend the other 20, 30 hours a week going to the campus, evangelism discipleship. I'll, I'm tempted to do a show of hands on this one. I'm not going to, but I just be if that was us, how committed to the vision are we? How much do we own it? I'll just be honest. I'm not sure I'd stay in the game at that point. I hate cutting grass. <laughs> i got to cut grass to do this? I'd raise support. Cut grass? I'm not so sure. But he owned it. He persevered. And he was all by himself for a while. One man, one campus. That's not ideal. We believe in teams. Amen, brother. I believe in teams. But what do you do when the rest of the team quits? He wanted to stay on staff, so he persevered. So I was just in a meeting. Andy and Blake were there too. And, and Kent was speaking. And Kent gave a great talk about teamwork. And Mike was there. Teamwork, collaboration is a really great talk. And then we kind of got in some small groups and we were talking about it. And one of the guys in our small group was kind of talking about it. And he was, and he's a verbal processor. Y'all know verbal processors, right? And he's very emotional. So sometimes it's like he starts talking. He doesn't even know where he's going. <laughs> and so you have to kind of listen. So partially I was trying to ask him some questions to help him understand what he was trying to say. But kind of what he's saying is, man, if all the campus outreaches in the world, if they don't all want to partner together, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. Now at first that kind of sounds deep and spiritual and inspirational, right? Kind of sounds like a Hallmark card, right? If we're not all in it together, I don't want to be in it. But it's really stupid if we're talking about a conviction, you know. I mean, imagine if, you know, Logan said, hey, man, we've been in this office all day. As soon as this is over, let's all go outside. There's an Oak Mountain State Park over here. Let's all go take a hike afterwards. Everybody's like, yeah, that sounds fun, you know. And then one person's like, I'm not sure I want to go. I didn't bring any other clothes. I don't want to get sweaty. And somebody's like, yeah, maybe. What if it's too cold? Or my feet are tired. And you're like, well, if everybody else is not going, I don't want to go. Well, you never had a conviction about going on the hike to Oak Mountain. Maybe you had another conviction about hanging out with people. You understand what I'm saying? And that, listen, if you don't have a conviction about hiking Oak Mountain, that's fine. Who cares? But if you say, hey, if other people aren't going to do this with me, I don't want to do it, you need to check your convictions. Now listen, I am all about team ministry. I mean, God has blessed Campus Outreach Birmingham, and one of the ways He's blessed us is we got a lot of guys been around for a long time that have been willing to stay together. And we even had a New Year's conference a couple of years ago where Kent was kind of going around interviewing the different area directors like, what's making this thing work? And one of the guys just said, 
part of it is we just all like hanging out with each other. That's true. Now listen, if you got to dig ditches, it's a lot better to dig ditches with your best friends, right? But if you have a conviction to dig ditches, and all your best friends say, I ain't digging that ditch anymore. You say, I'm going to keep digging the ditch. That's a conviction you own. When you're willing to do it all alone. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, skip down to verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Maybe at his lowest moment, on trial, and everybody bailed out. But look at the grace and the mercy. Here's another way, spiritually speaking, you know you have the right first convictions, first generation convictions, when you can say, may it not be charged against them. I'm not mad. That's between them and Jesus, man. Jesus will judge them one day if they need to be judged. I ain't judging them. But here's how he could say that. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and He strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I mean, don't you love Paul and the apostles and Stephen and people like that? It's like, hey, we're, you're on trial because we're thinking about killing you. Like, great, don't I get to give a defense though? And what I'm going to do, my defense is my testimony. Alright? Because why? Because it's first generational. Oh, you might chop my head off? Okay, that, that's fine. Let me just get this out about Jesus first. That's first generational conviction. I'm so passionate about this. Oh, you want to kill me? I mean, maybe, maybe there's the real answer. You don't know if you have a first generational conviction? Well, you die for it. <clears throat> Look down there, last verse, verse 21, next to the last verse. Do your best to come before winter. Listen, Paul was a real human being like me and you. He was lonely. He knew he was about to die. You know, this is where he asked him, like, hey, bring, bring the parchments so I can keep studying. He's still studying, going deeper, always reforming. They're like, bring my jacket because I'm cold. He's a normal guy like us. He suffered. He didn't like it. And Timothy, man, I love you. I want somebody with me in prison in my life. It's not wrong to be normal and say... I don't want to suffer. I don't want to take friendly fire. I want to be in a good church that's ideal. It's not wrong to want that. It's not wrong to fight for those things, pray for those things, work for those things. But then when it's like, I've done everything I legitimately can and it's not coming together, okay, I guess I'll start a grass cutting business and go back to work in my free time. And here's the reality, guys. If we're in Christ, we're never really alone in ministry, are we? He stands with us. He strengthens us. He encourages us. And the only person ever in the history of the universe that can honestly say, I'm all alone in ministry, was the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. When even His own Father abandoned Him and forsook Him in our place. I mean, He took on the cosmic loneliness and pain, and in some sense, I guess you could say friendly fire, that we don't know anything about. And he didn't like it, and he looked for any way out. But when there was no other way out, he said, I'll stay here. I'll take it. And he suffered. He took hell for me, took hell for you, all our short-sightedness, all our selfishness, all our weakness, right? All our... He took it. 
and, and remembering that and preaching that to ourselves when we're suffering, when we feel alone, that's what should strengthen our soul. Say, hey, I'm convicted. He loved me this much. I'm going to persevere. That's what changed the world. It's all the Gentiles went here. Lord Jesus, you are far too good to us. We are far too sinful and weak. But thank you, thank you that you save us and thank you that you give us the privilege to be in ministry, to get to do this full time, to get to be paid, to not have to cut grass on the side. And that we get to be a part of this miracle of seeing the Gentiles come to Christ. Fill us full of strength. And Lord, I pray for us. Lord, give us strong support. Give us strong teams. Give us friends to minister with. Give us churches that are amazing and minister to us. But God, when the going gets tough, I pray we would press deeper into You and we'd experience You. And we might on the backside say, I never want to go through that hardship again. But the way that I experience the nearness of Christ standing with me, it's glorious. It's worth it. I I can see now why You did it that way. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.